I hope you brought a Bible with you this morning. If you did, I'm going to ask you to open to the book of Genesis. Then kind of plant an anchor there. We're going to spend a lot of time in that book. We're going to bounce around to some other places. If you don't want to turn those other places with me, that's okay. Just make sure you can come back to the book of Genesis. There's a lot of teaching here. We're going to be in the 37th chapter, so if you want to go ahead and turn there, we'll be in it in just a few moments. This is the story of Joseph. Joseph was the son of Jacob. He grew up in a very large family. Jacob, his father, had been married two times. His first marriage produced ten sons. His second marriage produced two sons. Joseph was the oldest of those two boys, and arguably he was his father's favorite. If you were to ask Joseph who his father's favorite was, he wouldn't have any problem telling you that for the longest time it was him. If you were to ask his ten brothers who his favorite was, Jacob's favorite, they would all tell you the same thing without missing a beat. It's Joseph. In chapter 37, that's exactly the way it was. Joseph was Jacob's favorite son. He blessed him where he failed to bless his other boys, and they all knew it. He gave Joseph a very special coat. That coat carried with it Jacob's blessing. They didn't like it. The other brothers, they didn't like it at all. In fact, they were eaten up with all kinds of different emotions as a result of how Joseph was treated in the family. I want to show you some of those emotions this morning. Chapter 37, starting in verse 4. When his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him and could not speak a kind word to him. Now, just to make sure that we're all catching what the Bible says, tell me what emotion they had attached to their brother. They hated him. That's exactly what the Bible says. But pick up with me in verse 5. Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him all the more. Now, what was the emotion that they attached to their brother? They hated him. For some reason, it was this way in first service too. This side's really grabbing it. I don't know what's happening over here, so let's try this side too. They hated him. Verse 8. His brother said to him, do you intend to reign over us? Will you actually rule us? And they hated him all the more because of his dream and what he had said. So one more time, what was the emotion that they attached to their brother? They hated him. Hopefully you saw this in the Bible. It's not that they just hated him, but they hated him intensely. And it continued to intensify. The first time we find this emotion, the Bible just says they hated him. Then two other times it says they hated him all the more. Building one on the other, they hated him all the more. That's exactly how they felt about him. They're not mincing any words. The Bible is not holding anything back. Joseph's brothers hated him. But let me show you the root of that hatred. This is found in verse 11. His brothers were jealous of him. But his father kept the matter in mind. They hated him because they were jealous of him. They were jealous of the love that their father had given to him, the blessing that had been bestowed on him, the fact that he was the favorite. They hated him for the fact that they had to go out into the fields and work and Joseph stayed home. They hated him because they were told to do certain things and it appeared that Joseph didn't live under the same set of rules. They hated him because, and the Bible is very plain about it, they were jealous of him. A lot of hatred is born out of that emotion. A lot of hatred comes out of jealousy. In Joseph's life, it's just very plain. That's where it came from. His brothers and their hatred spent a great deal of time talking about Joseph. 
The Bible would teach us that when they were out of earshot of their father and out of earshot of Joseph, he really would become the center of their conversations. At one point, Jacob sent the older boys out into the field to tend the flocks, to take care of his investments, and they did. They went out and did exactly what they were supposed to. They were obedient boys. They were trustworthy boys up to a point. Jacob stayed home, or Joseph stayed home. And then Joseph was told by his dad that he was to go out into the fields, check on the brothers, and bring word back to him. When he was traveling out there, the other brothers were talking about him. I want you to hear what they say. This is in verse 17. Joseph has gone looking for his brothers. He comes to a man to say, can you tell me where they're at? Verse 17, he says, they have moved on from here, the man answered. I heard them say, let's go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them near Dothan. But when they saw him in the distance and before he reached them, catch this, they plotted to kill him. Here comes that dreamer, they said to each other. Come now, let's kill him and throw him into one of these cisterns and say that a ferocious animal devoured him. Then we'll see what comes of his dreams. When Reuben heard this, he tried to rescue, from their, tried to rescue him from their hands. Let's not take his life, he said. Don't shed any blood. Throw him into this cistern here in the desert, but don't lay a hand on him. Reuben said this to rescue him from them and to take him back to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe. They took from him the blessing his dad had given him, the richly ornamented robe he was wearing. And they took him and threw him into the cistern. Now the cistern was empty. There was no water in it. Joseph's walking through the fields. His brothers see him coming, and that's their conversation. When he gets close, let's kill him. Let's just do away with him. Reuben, in a fit of wisdom, says, but hold it, we could profit from him. Maybe we shouldn't kill him. Maybe we should come up with a different plan. Let's sell him into slavery. Now, you've got to be thankful for Reuben. He spared his life. He was a part of saving Joseph's life, but he was just one step above him. He was trying to spare Joseph from their hands, and they carried out their plan. When he got close, they, they stripped him. All he had to do was walk up to him and say, Hi, guys, what's going on? And the next thing he knows, he's under attack, 10 against 1. They take him down. They rip his coat off. My guess is they tied his hands and his feet. Now, the Bible doesn't tell us that, but that's just a guess. They tied his hands and his feet, and they threw him into this cistern. Now, cisterns are all across the Holy Lands. They are a means of capturing water. When you live in an arid environment where it seldom ever rains, water storage is a major issue. There were people during the days that Scripture was being written that dedicated their entire lives, kings that dedicated their entire reigns to the capture of water. So these cisterns were all over the place. They dug wells, we know that. But when they couldn't dig a well, they had to dig a hole. And the hole was dug to save water. This one was dry. I don't know why. The Bible doesn't tell us. It just says that there was no water in it. Coming out of the sides of the cistern, there'd be rocks and roots and sticks and all kinds of different things. If you look in them today, that's what you see, rocks and roots and sticks sticking out the side. Joseph was thrown down in there, bouncing off the walls. You would guess that his flesh was torn. He was beat up pretty hard, and then he hit the bottom. His world was upside down. He'd been thrown into a pit. Horrible, horrible place to be. But you want to know one of the worst parts of the whole story, at least in my estimation? Well, let me just show it to you. It's this very next verse. Listen to this. Verse 25. As they sat down to eat their meal, they looked up and saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead. Now, here's the hard part of that story. 
They had just thrown their brother into a deep, dark, lonely hole. And then they sat down to share a meal with one another. They had to have been at some sort of peace, at least with their consciences, to do that. For a lot of people, when they face hard decisions and they do difficult things, they'll always say something along these lines. I was sick to my stomach after that happened. These guys weren't sick to their stomach. They were at peace with their decision. They were at peace with what had happened. And they sat down to share a meal together. Right in the presence of Joseph. Or at least around the hole that he'd been thrown into. Now during that meal... Joseph was screaming. He was calling out for help. He was trying to get their attention. You can imagine what those words sounded like. Help me. I don't want to be here. You guys can still change your mind. Help me. Just throw a a rope down to me. Reach a hand down to me. Get me out of here. Reuben. That's probably who he would have called out for. Reuben, help me. He had another brother named Gad. Maybe he said, Gadzooks. No, I'm just kidding. Reuben, help me. And nobody helped. Nobody helped. He screamed so long that I would suppose that he went hoarse. He was trying to get their attention for so long, trying to get somebody to help him out that he couldn't even speak. And the Bible's very plain. There was no water in that cistern. He couldn't even take a drink and soothe his throat. You want to know how we know he was calling out? Chapter 42 will tell us that. The brothers will actually say this. After a while, Joseph becomes the second most powerful person in the nation of Egypt. That's all under God's providence. That's all as a result of his sovereignty. The brothers have to come to him for help. They do. Like everybody else in the surrounding area, they have to come to him. When they realize that they're in trouble, they still don't know that Joseph is their brother. They say this. Chapter 42, verse 21. They said to one another, Surely we are being punished because of our brother, We saw how distressed he was when he pleaded with us for his life, but we would not listen. That's why this distress has come upon us. The brothers listened to his voice while they were eating that meal. Maybe some crumbs were falling down to Joseph, and they were sitting so close that that as their meal fell down towards him, and his words lifted back towards them. But they did not listen, the Bible says. They didn't respond to his need. They left him there. When Joseph got up that morning, everything was good in his life. When he got up that morning, he was living under his father's favor. Oh, he might have known that his brothers didn't care much for him, but that didn't matter because his father loved him. He was the favorite son. He had no expectation whatsoever that the day would end the way it did. When Joseph started his day, he had no clue whatsoever that there was a deep, dark, nasty, whole waiting for him no idea whatsoever that's the way it is with pits nobody ever knows they're coming nobody ever expects it they just kind of surprise us oftentimes the terminology that is attached to people that have found their way into a pit sounds just like this i don't know how i got here i don't know how this happened If Joseph's story isn't enough to illustrate that for you, then maybe you need to talk to the person that's just filed for bankruptcy. Over and over and over again, they'll say, I I don't know how we got here. Oh, there's a few people that could trace everything back and and see the starting point, but for the most part, people that, that have to go through that will say those very words, I don't know how this happened. Maybe you want to talk to the battered wife who's knocking on the door of a shelter after she's welcomed in there as 
counselor sit and visit with her and say, well, what's been happening in your life? She'll say, I I don't even know. I don't know how I got here. I just know it's bad. Or you could talk to the battered husband, and this time not at a shelter because there aren't battered husband shelters, but there are a lot of battered husbands. If you were to talk to them in the, the quiet of their house behind closed doors and ask them how they got here, they would respond the same way. I don't know. I don't know how this happened. I don't know what went wrong. I don't know how I got here. You could talk to the teenager that's been kicked out of their house by alcoholic parents that chose their addictions over their family. Ask them how they got on the streets and they'll tell you, I don't know. I have no idea. Or you could go to the unemployment line and talk to the man that's worked at a mill for 25 years and then got his pink slip and he's told now that that he no longer has a job and he's in his mid-50s trying to find employment and it seems very, very difficult, if not impossible. And you ask him how he got there and he'll tell you, I don't know. I have no idea how I ended up in this line. This was not my plan. Or you can talk to the child that's lived in a loving home all of their life, surrounded by loving parents, but they can never find any kind of happiness. And you ask that little child, boy or girl, doesn't matter why they're so unhappy and how they got to this place, they'll tell you the same thing. They don't know. I don't know how I got here. Or maybe you want to sit in the doctor's office waiting room and visit with the lady that's come out from meeting with her doctor asking the same question again. Can you change my medications Because there's just a lot of darkness around me and I don't have any way out. And if you were to ask her how it happened, she would tell you she doesn't know. I don't know how I got here. Or visit with the person in the emergency room right after a car wreck has tragically changed their life. And you ask them what happened and they'll say, I never saw it coming. I don't know how I got here. Talk to the disabled person that wants nothing more than to go to work and do what they love, but their body won't let them and ask them what's going through their mind and they'll say things just like that. I don't know how I got here. Even the retired person that has worked their entire life and saved to get to that point of retirement and they've looked forward to all the things that could happen after they're no longer bound by the confines of a job, but five months into it, they've done everything on their to-do list and now they're just bored and purposeless and they're wandering around thinking to themselves, I cannot stand the thought of another day looking like the previous day. I don't want to do this again. I need some purpose and I need some meaning. And if you were to ask them, they would tell you the same thing. I don't know how I got here. How did this happen? Everything was supposed to be different. Everything was supposed to play out in a whole different way. How did I get here? Those words are familiar. They're familiar. In the ancient Hebrew, the idea of a cistern held with it, a literal or physical picture of a grave. People that were thrown into cisterns were thrown into graves. They resembled death. And if they didn't have that physical illustration attached to them, then the the ancient Hebrew would teach that they had such a deep darkness that surrounded them that those that found themselves in the bottom of one felt as if they were the living dead. Joseph might have just set up and said amen to that. Right from the bottom of the pit, this is worse than death. I am among the living dead. This is horrible, and I don't know how I got here. There are some other words that pit dwellers hear, oftentimes from those that are well-meaning counselors and friends. They'll say all kinds of different things to try to help people in the midst of pits. I know I have. After 25 years of ministry, though, I have learned a few things like this. It's better to listen a lot more than it is to talk. 
It's better to share hope than advice. And when you do choose to share advice, it ought to be tied to the Word of God. If you're going to direct somebody out of a pit, you use God's Word to do it. I've made a lot of mistakes through the years in trying to share human advice where godly advice is what's called for. I've made a lot of mistakes trying to use human wisdom where godly wisdom will cover it. We use the Word of God. You listen and you direct people to hope. I had that illustrated for me just this past week. A good friend of mine called me, and I haven't talked to him in probably five or six years. Six years ago, he had called a number of times. He's a minister in another church in another state. So where he's at doesn't really matter, but six years ago, he was going through some real difficulties. You might listen to some of those and think that's no big deal, but in his skin, it was huge. Over and over and over again, he would call me during all of that, and I would share with him all kinds of different wisdom and advice. This week, he called, and he said, it's happening again. The same thing is happening again. We haven't talked much in the last six years, but he said, how did this happen? And then he started to remind me of some of the things that I shared with him six years ago. I just kind of cringed and wished I hadn't said some of those things. Rather, I would have said to him this, you know what? God is on his throne. He is watching you. And he cares about you. And he has this figured out. You put your hope in him and you hang on. You just hang on. This week he shared with me all the different things that God did to get him out of that situation in his life then. And and so this time I was able to say to him, you look at what God has done. If you want your faith to be strong, you look at what God has done. And we were able to look back at that and I listened and we prayed together. and, And we were able to just hold on to the promises of scripture with one another. When you're in a pit, that's what you need to hear. That God is on his throne and he cares about you and he is watching over you. And if you ever talk to somebody in a pit, you make sure you remind them of that. God is on his throne. He cares about you and he is watching over you. And if you're going to share advice, you make sure that it comes from God's word. If you're going to give wisdom, you make sure that it is fueled by the Holy Spirit and not just your own flesh. You give that type of advice. That was illustrated for me this past week as well as this. I was walking through a store here in town, and on my way out, a lady chased me down. She said, Phil, 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 Phil. I turned around and saw her, and she had big tears running down her face. And she began to share with me the fears that she is facing, and they're not small. Again, the details don't matter. They're very big in her life. And and as she laid them all out with these tears running down her cheeks, she said, would you pray with me? And I thought, I'm so glad that's what you asked for. Because, man, that's hope. Let's pray together. And we did. Because I was writing this message, I said to her, if you don't hear anything else, hear this. God is on his throne. He cares about you. And he is watching you. I don't know that she believed me. But we parted company and she said, thank you. I had another couple come into my office. They've been there a number of times. I have their permission to share this story. They have been at war with one another for a long time. Now, when I say that they've been at war, I'm not kidding They've been at war with one another, and it has been ugly, just ugly for years and years and years and decades. They have been at war, but they never gave up. They always had expectations of God, and today they are living in great peace, and their marriage is what it's supposed to be. He brought his Bible with him and opened it up to this passage in the book of Proverbs, chapter 27, verse 17. If you want to go there with me, I want you to see this verse, because he caused me to see it in a brand new way. Proverbs 27, verse 17. Solomon writes this. As iron sharpens iron, 
so one man sharpens another. Now he read that verse to me and then followed it up with this question. Do you think that's what we've been doing with one another? Is sharpening each other? That's a great question. And at first I thought, no, because I've always believed that this verse meant that two men were standing beside each other with swords together and they were ready to do battle. But that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says, as iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. And do you know how iron sharpens iron? By clanging against each other. And that was his whole point. We've been clanging against each other for a long time. And now look at what's happened. We're living in peace. We've gotten to a place that we wanted to be. Do you think that's what we've been doing, sharpening each other? took him decades to figure it out. It was a rough go for a while. Now, there are other people that are at war with one another that need to read a few verses just above that, like verse 14. If a man loudly blesses his neighbor early in the morning, it'll be taken as a curse. There's a lot of people that think they're blessing people when all they're doing is cursing, particularly before the hours of 9 a.m. A quarrelsome wife, verse 15, is like a constant dripping on a rainy day. Restraining her is like restraining the wind or grasping oil with the hand. There are a lot of husbands that have cursed their wives, believing they were blessing them, and wives that have become quarrelsome as a result of it. And now there are some wives that have been quarrelsome that have caused their husband to curse them and never even think of blessing them because of it. There's all kinds of things that happen, but the Bible says as iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. That's the way it works. It really does. And when we understand that, we can begin to understand some of the pits around us. Sometimes we're in them because we're sharpening each other. Sometimes we're in those pits because we need to be in those pits. Sometimes we're there because of our actions. Let me take you back to the book of Genesis, chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. There is some amazing biblical teaching contained in these two verses. If you're a note-taker in your Bible, I'm going to encourage you to write something in the margin in just a minute. This teaching starts right here at the beginning of the Bible, and it will go all the way through to the book of Revelation. It'll answer a ton of questions for people. Listen to this. Genesis chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. And the Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. That is the very first place that the idea of free will appears in the Bible. If you are a note taker, you may want to write, free will begins here, right in the margin of your Bible. This is where it starts. Now follow me through this. Adam and Eve are in the Garden of Eden. God is creating everything around them. There are trees that are good for everything. There are shade trees. There are food trees. There is every kind of vegetation in the Garden of Eden. And right in the middle of the garden are these two trees. The Bible does not say that God planted them and then built a fence around them that no one could get over. The Bible does not say that God planted these trees in the middle of the garden and then dug a moat and filled it with crocodiles so that nobody could get to them. God planted these trees and he said to them, don't touch them. You can eat from any other tree you want out of this garden, but these two, you stay away from them. And what happened? You know the story. Adam and Eve went and they ate. The serpent deceived them and they ate. And from there on, free will has been a stumbling block for us. God gave it to us as a means of leading us into salvation. God gave us free will so that people would come to know him and to be 
blessed by him through forgiveness and mercy and eternal life. Free will leads us there. But listen to this, my friends. Free will also leads us away from God. Free will is our choice. We can choose to love the Lord and we can choose to deny the Lord. And a lot of people do. When a person becomes a Christian, God does not remove from them free will. God doesn't say, okay, now you're a believer. I'm going to take that thing away from you. And you don't ever have to worry about it again. It's still there. Adam and Eve were in the presence of God and he left free will with them to the point that they walked up to those trees and said, we're going to eat of these trees. And they found themselves in a deep pit with many consequences as a result of it. Free will still gets us in a lot of deep pits. Our choices, our actions get us there. But that's not the only way you get into pits. One person has said that pits that we find ourselves in are as numerous as the sands on the seashore. In fact, one author would go on to just make a list. It would sound like this. You can get into a pit through sudden tragedy. You can get there through a violent crime, by a loved one suffering mental illness, through addictions. You can be thrown into a pit through a spouse's declaration, there's free will, by parents that abandon. You can be thrown into a pit when someone else chooses sin. You can get there through life-threatening diseases, by the birth of handicapped children, through fires that destroy everything, traumatic financial loss. When someone you love goes to prison, you might even be able to argue that by being sent to prison yourself, there are a lot of pits there. You can end up in a pit through molestation, rejection, through the sudden death of a loved one, and the list just goes on and on and on. There are a myriad of ways that people end up in pits just like Joseph Joseph ended up there because his brothers decided to throw him down there. That was their free will. God didn't remove it from them. They were able to throw him into that pit. He didn't want to be there. He didn't choose to be there. It's certainly not something that he would have said, hey, this looks really appealing. He ended up there because of somebody else's choices. That happens a lot. That's how a lot of people get into pits, but there's all kinds of other ways. Some of them are just accidental. Some of them are a part of life. Some of them are just a natural part of what we have to deal with and what we have to go through living on this earth. The guarantee is this. Everybody's going to find themselves in one form or another in a pit. If you haven't, hang on, it's coming. And if you haven't, it may very well be that somebody that you know that's very close to you has been there or is there. Pits are a reality. They are a part of our lives. And we have to be ready to deal with them. For a lot of folks, when they end up in that spot, they begin to believe that the loneliness is the worst part. And they'll carry out the idea of that loneliness or aloneness, even to the point of believing that God is not there with them. Jesus himself in his wrestling match between his humanity and his divinity, his flesh and his spirit, would actually wrestle with that at the darkest point of his life, hanging on the cross. Jesus would deal with that issue. He would end up saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You can read it for yourself in Matthew chapter 27. Read those words. You will start out in verse 45, which by the way, it'll take you into some Aramaic words that I cannot pronounce. Probably you can't either. Only a few people in this room could. So just skip right over those and look at the meaning. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, Jesus isn't the only person that's ever dealt with that. We can go all the way back to Moses and see Moses dealing with that. 
Numbers chapter 11. Listen to this. Here's this guy that's been chosen for this huge task by God, yet he'll get to a point that he finds himself in a pit. Here it is. Chapter 11 of Numbers, verse 4. The rabble with them began to crave other food. And again, the Israelites started wailing and said, If only we had meat to eat. We remember the fish we ate in Egypt at no cost. Also the cucumbers, melons, leeks, onions, and garlic. But now we have lost our appetite. We never see anything but this manna. The manna was like coriander seed and looked like resin. The people went around gathering it and then ground it in a hand mill or crushed it in a mortar. They cooked it in a pot or made it into Krispy Kreme donuts. And it tasted... Glad you caught that. Just checking to see if you were awake. And it tasted like something made with olive oil. When the dew settled on the camp at night, the manna also came down. Moses heard the people of every family wailing, each at the entrance to his tent. The Lord became exceedingly angry, and Moses was troubled. He asked the Lord, Why have you brought this trouble on your servant? What have I done to displease you that you put the burden of all these people on me? Did I conceive all these people? Did I give them birth? Why do you tell me to carry them in my arms as a nurse carries an infant to the land you promised on oath to their forefathers? Where can I get meat for all these people? They keep wailing to me, give us meat to eat. I cannot carry all these people by myself. The burden is too heavy for me. Listen to what he says. These are words from inside a pit. If this is how you're going to treat me, put me to death right now. If I have found favor in your eyes, do not let me face my own run. People in the midst of deep pits, in their aloneness, when it looks like God doesn't care about them anymore, oftentimes will say that, I would just rather die. Jesus, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Moses, if this is the way it's going to be, put me to death. He's not the only one that felt that way. Let me take you to the book of 1 Kings. This is Elijah's story. 1 Kings chapter 19. Verse 1. Now Ahab told Jezebel everything Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. So Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah to say, May the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow I do not make your life like that of one of them. Elijah was afraid and ran for his life. When he came to Beersheba in Judah, he left his servant there, while he himself went a day's journey into the desert. He came to a broom tree, sat down under it, and prayed that he might die. I've had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life. I am no better than my ancestors. Then he lay down under the tree, and he fell asleep. All at once an angel touched him and said, Get up and eat. He looked around, and there by his head was a cake of bread, baked over hot coals and a jar of water. He ate and drank, and then lay down again. The angel of the Lord came back a second time and touched him and said, Get up and eat, for the journey is too much for you. So he got up and ate and drank. Strengthened by the food, he traveled 40 days and 40 nights until he reached Horeb, the mountain of God. And there he went into a cave to spend the night. Elijah was exactly the same. I'd rather die. Take my life. Make me like one of them. I cannot handle this anymore. Those are words from a pit. Even David, man after God's own heart, would utter words very much like that. This is Psalm chapter 40, verse 1. I waited patiently for the Lord. He turned to me and heard my cry. He lifted me out of the slimy pit, out of the mud and the mire. He set my feet on a rock, and he gave me a firm place to stand. David was in trouble. He was in a deep pit. He couldn't even stand up. Deep pit. Couldn't even stand up. But did you catch what David said? I waited on the Lord, and he brought me out. 
I waited on the Lord. I waited on the Lord, and he got me out. Elijah waited on the Lord, and he made himself available to God to the point that he actually went to Mount Horeb, the mountain of God, and he went into a cave to stay there with God. God got him out, and in his presence, he showed his sovereignty. God's still doing the same thing. God is still taking care of people the same way. God is still doing it. If you're in a pit, if you're in a pit, you wait on God because God is watching you and He cares about you and He is on His throne and there's work happening. There's good stuff taking place in that pit. You may not see it, but it's taking place. I had that illustrated for me in the biggest of ways last Sunday. It's always interesting to me how the Holy Spirit brings things together. At one point in the message last week, I was talking about the differences between Friday morning, or Friday as a a whole, Saturday as a whole, and Sunday during the days of the crucifixion and the resurrection. If you were here, you heard me say that Friday was a day of great anticipation. They wanted to see what Jesus was going to do. They did not expect him to die on the cross, and they certainly did not expect him to go into a tomb, but he did. On Saturday, all those that were a part of him found themselves in a pit. All those that were disciples and followers found themselves in a pit. Saturday was a day of great reflection. They had to have been uttering words like this. How did we get here? How did this happen? And I'm sure they were pounding one another with horrible counsel. And then Sunday morning came. And when Sunday came, everything changed. We had a video that we presented right after I did that part of the message. And in that video, there were these words. You may not see what's happening, but resurrection is coming. You may not see what's happening, but resurrection is coming. God is still on his throne, and he cares about you, and he is watching you. And David would say, he will pull you out of that pit. Here's a big caution for you, and I want you to be aware of this. This is very possibly the most spiritually vulnerable place people will ever find themselves. You are open to spiritual attack in the bottom of a pit, only overshadowed by people that are available or exposed to spiritual warfare outside of Christ. This is the most vulnerable time, and you have got to be careful because Satan will attack. He'll put all kinds of ideas and thoughts in your head and words in your heart. He'll make you think, even think things like this, God has forsaken me. It would be better for me to die That's the only way out of this. Those are the devil's words. That's where they come from. One of the reasons that I know that spiritual warfare is so strong in those moments is David's words. Listen to this again, Psalm chapter 40, verses 1 and 2. I waited patiently for the Lord. He turned to me and heard my cry. He lifted me out of the slimy pit, out of the mud and the mire. He set my feet on a rock and gave me a firm place to stand. When you're down in the bottom of a pit and it's dark and it's damp and it's lonely and you're alone and and there is no way out of it, you cannot even stand up. There's mud and there's mire there. There are slick rocks there. It's a small cramped place. You cannot stand up. And you know what the Bible teaches is of the utmost importance in spiritual battle? Being able to stand. Let's go to Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6 verse 13. Therefore put on the full armor of God. So when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground, and after you have done everything to stand, stand firm then. Now that's the teaching of the Bible about spiritual warfare. 
you have to be able to take on an aggressive posture. If you're going to defeat the devil, you've got to do it from your feet. You can't do it sitting down, laying down, or crammed into a, a tight hole. You have to be able to stand up. Pits keep you from being able to stand up. But when you come out of them, when you come out of them, David says, God will give you a place to stand. He will put your feet on solid ground, and you will be able to battle back against the enemy. When that happens, the victory is very close. When you start fighting again, the victory is very close. If you have thrown up your hands and surrendered in the pit, and if you are like Elijah saying, that's it, I can't do anything else, it's better for me to die. If you're like Moses pleading with God saying, just take me out of here, I don't want to deal with this, you're in the bottom of the pit. You've thrown your hands up, you've surrendered, but if you've gotten back to a place where you say, God is on my side and I'm willing to fight, then know this, you are outside the pit. God has brought you out and he has placed your feet on solid ground and he's given you the ability to fight. So ask yourself this, is there any fight in me? If there's not, there is probably a good indication that you're at the bottom of the pit. But if the fight's coming back, if the fight's there, your feet are getting on solid ground again. And you're going to be able to battle through this with God on your side. Because if you know nothing else, know this. God is on his throne. He is watching you. And he cares about you. And he has not forsaken you. You may not see what's happening, but resurrection is coming. Joseph would point that out. Let me take you back to the book of Genesis. Just one more passage. We're going to go back to the book of Genesis. This time to chapter 50. Joseph's brothers now know who he is. He knows who they are. He's seen his father again, been in his presence. All of that, biblical mathematicians would tell you, happened at least 20 years after he was thrown into the cistern, possibly longer than that, but at least 20 years from the time he last saw his brothers to this point in time now. 20 years of God doing God's work. Joseph, like we've already said, has risen to a place of prominence in all of Egypt. He's the second most powerful person. God put him there to protect all of Egypt and all of the surrounding areas from a famine. Joseph would receive a dream, a vision from God that would help him make provisions for that. He went to Pharaoh. Pharaoh blessed him in it. Now as the famine is hit and it is really raging, people from all over the area are having to come to Pharaoh to get their provisions. And Joseph is the one watching over it. His brothers are feeling bad about what's happened. They threw him into a pit. They're the ones that put him down there and then unwrapped their sandwiches and had a meal. They're the ones that were responsible for the separation. But Joseph, now with the, the blessing of hindsight, can see something different. Kind of like somebody that would come and say, is that what God was doing? Were we sharpening each other? Joseph now has the ability of hindsight, and this is what he says, verse 19. But Joseph said to them, don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good, to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. That word intended, if you were to look at it from the original languages, you would find its roots in the idea of weaving. So here's what he's saying. What you wove for evil, God rewove for good. What you intended for evil, God used for good. What Satan intends for evil, God uses for good all the time. Even the pits that we end up in. What was woven together as evil there, God will reweave it into good. It's obvious to me that many of you know what I'm talking about as you're shaking your heads. You spent time in a pit, 
and you got out of it, and you can see what God was doing. And I'm going to venture a guess that every one of you would say the same thing. It just meant you couldn't give up. You had to hold on. Because God is on His throne. He is watching us, and He cares for us. When He gets us out of the pit, well, it's a brand new life. It's a, a wonderful way of living. It's peace where there was turmoil. It's purpose where there was meaningless. It is Jesus instead of us. When we get out of the pit, we can demonstrate it to everyone around us. I read a story a while back. I don't even remember where it was at. <clears throat> don't know who the author was. Somebody was telling stories from history, and it was a pretty good one. It made me smile. This was during the Civil War. The armies of the north were marching to the south, and they had been afoot for a long time. Day after day after day, the armies were marching, and they were going to do battle with the armies of the south and happened to be in the middle of winter, so it wasn't the best of conditions. As they would march day after day after day, their generals, their commanders would tell them that they didn't have enough time to lay down to sleep, so he would allow them to just sit down at a tree and close their eyes for a little while. And they would get up and they would keep marching. Finally, they were at the point of exhaustion. They had nothing left. They couldn't put another foot in front of the other one. They were just done. So their commanders told them that they could take the night, lay down in a field, cover themselves with their blankets and their coats, whatever else they could find, and they could sleep. And they all did. The entire garrison, the entire battalion, laid down in this field, covered themselves with their coats, pulled blankets up over their heads. And whoever it was that was telling this story said that, snow began to fly and covered every one of their bodies. Another garrison marched in early that next morning, and as they were coming, they, they saw these mounds, and they believed that they had come across mass graves. They were pretty bothered by it, obviously. They didn't know that it was their men, but still it was a disconcerting thought. Well, they camped in the area for just a, a few hours, maybe even just minutes, and it was time for the bugler to blow revelry. There, I got it right this time. So he grabbed that bugle, put it to his lips, and he blew the notes as loud as he possibly could, and all the men in that new garrison popped up ready to go, and then they saw the most amazing thing. These other people began to pop up. They were coming out of the graves. Now that's a good way of seeing what God does for us. Other people may think you're dead. They may think it's over. But resurrection is still coming. You may not see what's happening, but resurrection is still coming. Get ready to live it. You hang on with all of your faith. You hang on with great hope, knowing that God loves you. He is on His throne and He cares for you. He's watching over everything that's going on. You hang on. This is the stuff where faith is built. You look at what God's going to do and you give Him the power. Now you be careful because you are vulnerable to great attacks from the enemy. But when God pulls you out, he will put your feet on solid ground. You'll stand ready to fight. Why don't you stand and pray with us? Father in heaven, there's a certain comfort in knowing that we're not alone in the things that we deal with. There's even a certain comfort in recognizing that those that have gone before us have struggled through the same things. You did. You struggled with it. Your humanity did. Moses did. Elijah did. David did list goes on and on and on. Martha did. Mary did. Job did. I don't know where this list ends. Father, those that have gone before us have found themselves in pits, but they've experienced 
resurrection power. They've experienced you. Lord, so many people in this room have also. They've experienced you. You've brought them out of the pit. There are others, though, that are still there. And they need something from you. I pray, Lord, that you'll give it to them. Whatever it is that they need, I pray that you'll give it to them. Starting with your presence and the knowledge that you're there, Lord, whisper in their ears, speak to their hearts, hold them tight as your children. Remind them that you are on your throne, that you love them, that even though they can't see it, you're at work and resurrection is coming. Thank you for all the ways that you pour yourself into us. And thank you, Lord, for never leaving us alone, not ever. In Jesus' name, amen.